And welcome back to Axioms of Liberty podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our time to help you build a better foundation to understand your world. And we're going to continue with part two of Knut von Holmes' Praxeology, the Invisible Hand that Feeds You, starting with chapter nine, Entrepreneurship. All human action is the conscious aim of an individual to satisfy a particular desire always with the ultimate goal of relieving a felt uneasiness. Any desire the person fulfills counts as being of profit to that individual. Any personal desire the actor fails to meet is called a loss. Gains and losses, like all other value judgments, are entirely subjective because they include non-exchangeable goods as well as exchangeable ones. Thus, we can define profit as the satisfaction obtained minus the satisfaction foregone. Therefore, all human action seeks some form of profit. Even suicide is a profit-seeking action. A person engaged in self-murder seeks profit since they value the presumed comfort of death more than the apparent discomfort of life. Even actions directly aimed at helping other people are profitable to the actor. Altruists giving away their wealth to charity are also profit-seekers. They hold the warm, fuzzy feeling of being able to be friendly to their fellow humans in higher regard than whatever else they could do with their capital. In this sense, all actions are selfish because they aim to remove or decrease the uneasiness the actor apparently feels. One cannot claim to be against profits without simultaneously being for losses. Praxeology aims to understand the consequences of various modes of action, but never judges the motives behind the action. Science does not adjudicate whether an effort is fair or unfair, but rather reveals that all human effort aims towards some form of personal profit. Searching for profit and avoiding losses is essentially all we ever do. Material profits and losses are different from psychological profits and losses. When people use the terms profits and loss, they typically refer to the material aspect, monetary profit and loss. The success or failure of actions in the market translates into profits and losses that are measurable in monetary terms. In the market, Profit means a surplus of money after a set of exchanges, and a loss means a shortage. The more profit an entrepreneur enjoys in a completely free market, the better he has satisfied his consumer's needs. Since markets are predicated on human behavior, they always contain uncertainty. The better an entrepreneur anticipates how to meet his customer's wants and needs in the most efficient way possible, admits this uncertainty, the higher his profit will be. Failed predictions lead to losses. An entrepreneur's profit level tells him how well he has satisfied his customer's desires during the interval he measured that profit. The greater the divide between what customers are willing to pay and the cost of all factors that went into production, the more profitable the venture becomes. Therefore, the entrepreneur always has the incentive to reduce production costs. In doing so, 
he instills a pricing competition between himself and all other entrepreneurs. This market-seeking competition is what drives consumer prices down. However, prices tell us about the satisfaction of the seller or the buyer at any given moment. Instead, prices signal to entrepreneurs how well they serve their clients. The clients express their opinions about the producer's performance through their actions. If the price is too high, they won't purchase the product. If they buy the product, they signal to the entrepreneur that they value the product more than that the sum of the money at that time. In doing so, they provide the entrepreneur with a method for optimizing the price tag of said product. All human action is speculation, but the catalactic term entrepreneurship refers to determining how to allocate capital goods for particular commercial purposes in the best possible way. Entrepreneurship is risking one's capital to make a profit. Contrast this with capital, which is the act of accumulating capital goods for later use. In the market, all entrepreneurs, whether acting as individuals or on behalf of an organization, are capitalists. To make a profit, they must put capital at risk and serve customers better than their competitors. The CEO of a large corporation gets to decide how to make the best use of its capital. The CEO of a large corporation may look at wages worldwide and move the corporation's production facilities to a low-income area and then ship the product to where people are willing to pay the highest price possible. Price discrepancies between places provide the entrepreneur with opportunity. Other entrepreneurs then take note of the first mover's success, whereby they can make similar moves to increase their profits, increasing market competition, and lowering consumer prices in the process. From the consumer perspective, falling prices are way more important than increased wages since falling prices help everyone while simultaneously increasing the efficiency of the market process. Redistribution schemes only temporarily alleviate the subsidy recipient's financial burdens while simultaneously reducing the market's process efficiency. Furthermore, the first company's profits will decrease as more competitors enter the market. This competition reduces the first company's chances of becoming a monopoly. Unsurprisingly, large corporations often lobby for increased regulatory policies for this very reason. The more they can reduce market competition, the longer they can profit from the monopoly position. Government officials and giant international corporations are thus incentivized to help one another at the expense of everyone else. And their incentives grow stronger and stronger the more interdependent they become. The only way to break this vicious cycle would be to introduce onto the free market something they cannot regulate. But that's a whole different discussion for now. Let us focus on principled, honest entrepreneurship. If I, becoming a successful entrepreneur, is the most efficient way for a person to contribute to the betterment of society, why aren't we taught entrepreneurship in school? The answer is surprisingly simple. Entrepreneurship skills is not a skill that can be taught. All profitable entrepreneurial endeavors have one thing in common. They add something new to the market, 
something novel that no one else is thinking about in that moment. Whether this is a new product, production method, or way to allocate capital goods doesn't matter. Entrepreneurs pursue undiscovered discrepancies between prices and consumer needs. Their success is always linked to their ability to see what others can't. The entrepreneur's level of formal education help them connect the dots. Entrepreneurship is more of a mindset than a skill one can teach to another. Entrepreneurship is a creative endeavor interwoven with personal risk-taking. Capital is a prerequisite for progress. Formal education is not. Education can only provide students with theories and tutorials already developed in society. Schools and universities can teach people how to become functioning cogs in an existing societal machine, but never how to improve said machine. To become an entrepreneur, one must see something others don't and put capital at risk to fill in the gap in the market. In this sense, successful entrepreneurial endeavors are the market equivalent of scientific breakthroughs. As previously discussed, a person can simultaneously fulfill the roles of wage earner and the entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs don't earn wages. Instead, they make money through profits. However, all wage earners are simultaneously entrepreneurs since all people allocate capital goods in some way, shape, or form to acquire profits. Entrepreneurial endeavors can make a person more money than wage earning can but only because the entrepreneur is willing to take on greater risk and accept uncertainty in the future of their cash flow. A worker takes on a lower risk by trading away the ability to make more money for the certainty of a regular wage check. In some cases, this can allow the worker to become an entrepreneur in his spare time since the regularity of the payouts might make him dare to embark on an entrepreneurial adventure he otherwise would not have. In choosing our actions, we must all balance certainty and risk in our lives and consider both when deciding how to spend our days. If Friday agrees to help Robinson catch fish for X amount of hours per day for one rabbit per day, he trades away X amount of hours per day for the certainty of a daily rabbit meal. This certainty is valuable to Friday because it relieves him of the need to find food every day. He has removed some uncertainty about his future by accepting a steady job and payment. The sense of security and a steady payment brings may or may not enable a person to launch entrepreneur ventures on their own. Another example would be a certain author of books on praxeology, who happened to have a steady job when he first embarked on his writing journey and started to sell books and give lectures in his spare time. It is important to remember that profits and losses are two sides of the same coin. When entrepreneurs make huge profits, they signal to the market that some projects are squandering resources and that there are many opportunities for those who want to fix the problems. Losses give the opposite signal. They signal to the market that a particular entrepreneur is wasting resources and that copying their behavior is probably not a good idea. Regardless, the imaginative entrepreneur always has an array of opportunities as long as the market is allowed to function in a natural way. 
As soon as someone starts tampering with the market process, the price signal gets distorted, and the noise from all this distortion makes it harder to see these opportunities. Capitalism cannot work its magic if society punishes the profit makers, nor can the market function properly if society collectivizes the losses. The only way for civilization to progress is to let the phenomenon play out in the way that generally reflects how well the entrepreneurs satisfy the wants and needs of their customers. When a society tampers with the free market incentive structure, it reduces that market's functionality. The market is the best tool humans have for punishing resource-wasteful behavior and rewarding frugal conduct. No additional regulations can ever lead to less resource waste, not even if punishments are allowed to be more severe than those that losses already provide. In the long run, all limitations handicap the market's resource optimization mechanism. Entrepreneurs who waste resources and fail to meet the needs of their customers run out of resources, forcing them to earn a living wage as wage earners instead. At least they've accumulated enough capital to give entrepreneurship another try. Chapter 10. Progress Economic progress comes through capital accumulation. The catalactic definition of a progressive economy is an economy in which the total amount of capital goods increases. Simultaneously, individual goods become cheaper, and new goods arrive on the markets to satisfy novel consumer needs. Another way to express this is to say that living standards increase an economy that progresses. Thanks to the efficiency of the free market process, most of the world's population now own or have access to mobile devices. Devices that James Bond could only dream of a mere couple decades ago. No matter how well educated people are or how advanced their technical skills may be, the economy can only progress if capital goods are available. Savings are crucial to prosperity. We can only increase our standards by consuming less in the present, and we consume less in the present when we believe that by increasing our savings, we can enjoy more consumption in the future. Entrepreneurs who satisfy customer needs reap the benefits of being profitable without spending their savings. Through market competition, their ability to do so continuously decreases over time. Therefore, to continue enjoying a high standard of living, the entrepreneur must innovate and increase production to satisfy more wants and more needs. Market competition functions as an imaginary blowtorch aimed at the, their behinds. Evolve or go out of business. If you manage to evolve, you might avoid being usurped from your entrepreneur throne by new market actors. Entrepreneurs acquire additional capital goods in two ways. They can either use their profit to expand whatever technologies they're currently using or invest their profits into developing new ones. Brick producers can acquire more capital by building more brick factories to keep pace with consumer demands. But producers can also choose to invest in an automated production, which reduces the cost of human labor and allows them to sell it bricks at a lower price. These methods are not mutually exclusive and both reduce the price of bricks, enabling more people to buy bricks. Almost every factory requires bricks, so the brick price reduction 
benefits the production of all other goods directly as well as indirectly. In the pursuit of profit, the entrepreneur decreases everyone's living costs as a byproduct. In doing so, entrepreneurs free up more time and resources so that others can pursue entrepreneurial careers themselves. Individual capital accumulation is thus paramount for a society to become prosperous. Critics of capitalism misunderstand the market process because they fail to consider the benefits of profit-seeking entrepreneurial behavior. Most of the misconceptions stem from the fact that most people think that what they're currently living in is capitalism, which is not the case in any country anywhere. Trigger-happy, money-printing institutions are everywhere, and government overreach in markets is the norm, not the exception. The common notion that the capitalist entrepreneur unjustly benefits from the prosperity capital accumulation brings stems from the misunderstanding of how market processes work. We can easily see that entrepreneurs reap only a fraction of what they sow. Profits result from successful risk-taking when trying to satisfy other people's desires. Entrepreneurs will only enjoy profits when they have successfully adjusted their production process according to the wishes of their customers. Still, a competitor's increased capital accumulation consistently threatens the entrepreneur's accumulation of profits because supply and demand determine prices. Every new type of brick introduced on the market lowers the marginal producti productivity of the factories that produce the original block. An increased supply of bricks on the market decreases the total value of bricks made in the factories owned by the original producer. Setting all this aside, let's now focus on the non-entrepreneurial segment of the population. The most magical aspect of the free market process is that in relative terms, these people are the ones whose living standards increase the most from market competition and decreasing production costs. The marginal productivity of their wage rates and labor goes up regardless of the success of any individual entrepreneur. The purchasing power of a fixed wage always increases over time as long as it's adjusted correctly for monetary inflation. Short term, automation may cause job loss, but because wealth in society has increased, entrepreneurs can afford to employ workers for other tasks and even pay them more. In the imaginary construction of the absolutely free market, capital accumulation, and labor division always and necessarily work in everyone's favor. Only when we introduce involuntary, non-consensual action, this ceases to be the case. Non-consensual action includes, but it is not limited to, robbery, theft, taxes, market intervention, and money supply manipulation. The market consistently distributes additional wealth created by successful businesses so that non-entrepreneurial groups benefit without risk of loss. Even laborers employed by competing companies benefit from the success of their competitors since economic competition drives down the prices of all goods. The only population segment with anything to lose from economic progress is unsuccessful entrepreneurs who mismanage their capital and waste resources. Where there is economic progress and the total amount of capital in society increases, 
the actual wage rates of all workers increase alongside their purchasing power because of falling prices. Technological advancements are intrinsic to societal development, but only insofar in as society has enough capital to use them. Not having the right tool or technology limits the production of any good, but not having enough capital goods halts the output of that good altogether. Without acquiring the knowledge of how to produce a fishing net, Robinson is regulated to catching fish with just his bare hands. But even if he figures out how to make the net, he will never be able to produce it unless he's in possession of the necessary raw materials. Only through capital accumulation can Robinson even try to create something new, and only through trial and error can he be certain whether the fishing net functions as intended. Thus, in the development of society, the imperative for capital accumulation supersedes technological advancements. The internet can provide you with information about how to acquire almost every skill known to man. But to use those skills, you first need time and capital, which are two sides of the same coin. To build a rocket, you need the parts, and without the necessary materials, a master's degree in rocket science won't even get you to the treetops. Only by accumulating capital can the sky truly be the limit. Can your earnings buy you more today than they did yesterday? If so, you're making economic progress. Are prices falling? If true, then society is making economic progress. However, if prices are not decreasing, something is hindering society's economic progress. The intricacies of hindrance are another matter. But here's a glimpse. Throughout history, those with the power to mint the coin of a country have never resisted the temptation to increase the money supply. Hence, a decrease in the purchasing power of your currency makes the money printer the prime suspect. Systems that interfere with people's ability to save slow economic progress and halt any potential increase in living standards. Envy is the arch-nemesis of progress because it drives people to act against their long-term self-interest by trying to extract value from them and their fellow human beings using violent, coercive means such as money printing. The solution is sound money, which is costly to produce and therefore hard to counterfeit. Sound money is the antidote to the debilitating impact of an increasing money supply as it allows for people to protect their capital without having to invest it in risky assets. Capital accumulation drives progress. Comprehending this reveals the irony inherent in so-called progressive politics. The more progressive the political movement, the higher the tendency of its proponents want to hinder actual progress and societal advancement through interference in the market process. It may be true that a transition to a greener economy can only be made possible by technological innovation, but innovation plays second fiddle to capital accumulation. Hindering the market process slows the pace of innovation. All tools and technologies have one single purpose, to increase efficiency and thereby save human time. If those in charge allow the free market to work its magic, everyone benefits from this time saving. 
the notion that humans would or should voluntarily choose to use less energy as we move forward into the future is naive and outright dangerous. Our task is to learn how to use our available resources more efficiently. The only way to do that is through capital accumulation followed by a catalactic competition, which lowers all costs for everyone. Renewable energy sources are, by definition, more cost-effective than non-renewable ones. But if they need political subsidies and other crutches to appear on the market, then they're not renewable. They can never be. If the cost of constructing a solar panel or wind turbine is higher than the savings one realizes from its final total output, it is not working as advertised. In other words, it wastes more energy than it produces. It's really that simple. We can never calculate actual costs in the market with targeted subsidies, excise duties, and taxes on specific products. Market interventions skew people's notions of actual costs and distort all price signals. In the long run, this is a dangerous game to play because it alters human behavior at its most fundamental level. Politicians reward unproductive, inefficient behavior and punish constructive action by tampering with the incentives to choose one product over another. It is hard to overstate how harmful the effects of market interventionism are since the consequences of unintended side effects are impossible to measure. Because a policy can never be proven successful through empirical evidence, we can only comprehend market phenomena by deductive reasoning. Further, it is tough to deprogram an already brainwashed population. The concentration camps of Nazi Germany and the gulags of the Soviet Union are stark reminders of what can happen when collectivist fantasies pursue a greater good for society directive. The most atrocious crimes ever committed by humans were carried out by people believing their actions effectuated a greater good, guided by the political narrative du jour. The tragic irony is that everyone would have been better off if they had focused on their own well-being instead of that of the collective. Chapter 11. Prices. As we have seen, economic progress results from consensual human interactions in the free market. Those who can see what others don't, the entrepreneurs, initiate the mechanisms that set progress in motion. True, entrepreneurs can make massive profits from improving their production processes, but the poor are the greatest beneficiaries of this increase in capital goods via diminishing prices. We reach these conclusions using deductive reasoning exclusively, starting from a set of irrefutable truths about human action. To understand how prices arise in the market, we must first consider the factors involved in price determination. What forces affect how people evaluate their opinions and options choose whether to purchase something or not? The market is a process that is a product of how people assess their situations and consciously act according to how they value one option over all others in any given case. In analyzing human action, we can use metaphors, which should never be taken literally. Praxeological metaphors are merely illustrations of specific phenomenon that result from human conduct. As discussed earlier, a price is a ratio between two goods. 
we express the price of a good in terms of the quantity of the good we're exchanging. A price is thus the outcome of two market actors exchanging information about how they value what they get in terms of what they are giving up. In barter trade, this ratio is all there is to it. In the market, which is a process that arises from the division of labor, more factors are at play. Market participants trade indirectly using a common medium of exchange called money. Money is one side of all market transactions, allowing market participants to perform economic calculations. A producer of a specific good must find a suitable price for that good to make a profit. The window between the highest and lowest price he can charge his customers is very narrow. If producers set the price too high, fewer customers will buy the product, forcing the producer to keep the excess supply, and storing large amounts of a good is usually a costly affair. If the price is too low, the producer will be unable to keep pace with consumer demands, thereby missing out on potential profits. The producer eventually reaches a point where producing another unit of the good isn't profitable anymore. The more competing producers we add to the mix, the narrower the price window. Thus, the final market price of the good is affected by supply and demand. Prices indicate where to get the best deals on a homogeneous goods. Entrepreneurs compete to satisfy their customers' desires by setting the most optimal prices for their goods. The entrepreneur profits when the prices are set low enough to meet demand, but high enough to cover the producer's expenses. Price tags set outside this narrow window will result in losses. When selling a good or service is highly profitable, competing actors enter the market and increase the supply, ultimately lowering that good's price. When competition is no longer profitable, the price of a good reaches an equilibrium point. Catalactic competition always drives prices toward this theoretical point where no more profit is possible. In reality, though, the equilibrium point does not exist. The market is an ever-changing environment, and any theoretical, all-else-being-equal scenario never occurs. Like praxeological metaphors, these scenarios are helpful tools for understanding specific market phenomenon, but are purely imaginary constructs. Through this example, we have explored the mechanisms that dictate the prices of consumer goods. But what about the prices of higher order goods and factors of production? Prices emerge because people value things differently. In the case of consumer goods, Acting individuals choose to buy because they expect the good or service provided to bring about more satisfactory state. You buy food with the expectation that eating it will relieve your hunger. Producers analyze the market to determine what they anticipate buyers will pay for the end product. The price must be high enough to cover the total cost of the specific factors of production that went into producing the good but low enough to entice buyers to act. Weighing costs against expected incomes in this way is called appraisement. How well entrepreneurs appraise their future expenses, profits, and losses affect market prices. In contrast, the prices of production goods arise from the appraisement of expected utility of the entrepreneur. 
not from the direct valuation of expected utility, as in the case of consumer goods. All prices stem from consumer valuations, but the value of a thing is not the sum of the value of its parts. A value judgment precedes every human action. Value judgments are therefore impossible to sum up mathematically. The market is a dynamic process, as human activity has no constants. Whatever customers were willing to pay for a product in the past cannot tell us anything specific about what they will pay for it later. Entrepreneurs can appraise their production processes, but science can't tell us anything specific about future human choices. Economists, those who have been educated by the government-subsidized schools and universities, often claim that human action can be mathematically derived and treat historical prices like empirical evidence for their theories. Unsurprisingly, these so-called economists and their skewed worldviews are very popular among the segments of society that believe they can profit from regulation justified by this supposed evidence. It is easy to see why these flawed theories become so popular if we look at human history since the Age of Enlightenment. The Enlightenment gave us the scientific method, from which all a posteriori knowledge stems. Evidence-based, peer-reviewed research led to massive civilizational advancements because it exponentially increased humanity's understanding of our universe and the planet on which we live. The scientific community naturally believed they could apply the same methods to studying economics. It wasn't until Ludwig von Mises realized that all economic science is firmly rooted in subjective valuations governing individual action that praxeology was born. He realized that the only way to conclude anything about human action was to use reason and logical deduction starting from a set of undeniable axioms. Because of the success of the a posteriori sciences, many scientists question the validity of a priori knowledge to this day. But the very act of questioning proves the validity of praxeological axioms. To put something into question in the first place, one must act deliberately out of one's own free will. You cannot question anything without simultaneously proving that all human action is purposeful behavior and that you are in possession of your own body's actions. Throughout the ages, it has been very difficult for humans to adapt a bird's-eye view of the age in which they live. Humans always think their worldview is modern, and for the most part, correct. Science itself can only progress when we dare to question its foundations. The statement, an increase in the supply of good X, will lead to the reduction of its market price if all other factors remain unchanged, does not require empirical evidence. We can conclude that the statement is true using deductive reasoning alone, and empirical evidence can neither further prove nor disprove the claim. To understand human action, we must rid ourselves of all preconceived notions about how to prove scientific claims true or false. As long as the propaganda machines are as powerful as they are today, with government-subsidized media outlets and at least 12 years of mandatory brainwashing in almost every country, changing people's minds is going to be tough. But logical arguments are the only weapon if the pen is indeed mightier than the sword.
this author firmly believes that our species yearning for the truth will eventually triumph and prevent us from destroying ourselves by denying it. Mainstream economists fear the rise of monopolies on the free market. They claim that the unregulated free market leads to the formation of monopolies which they define as businesses that dominate and control the supply of a particular good or service in an industry. But what constitutes a particular good? Because of the subjective nature of value judgments, it is impossible to quantify what the concept of a particular good means to any one person. As discussed earlier, a person may be willing to pay more for a car if he buys it from a friend. Likewise, a person may prefer one brand over another, even if the product comes from the same factory. Observing that two goods are physically identical cannot tell the observer anything about how a particular customer will value them. A worn-out teddy bear that an adult loved as a child is probably worth more to that person than a new one of the same kind. In short, human valuations cannot be cardinally ranked or measured. Therefore, it is also impossible to identify which companies have a monopoly on which goods and services since only the individual actor can decide what constitutes a particular good to them. The definition becomes so broad that the word monopoly loses all meaning when defined in this way. The Coca-Cola company may have a monopoly on selling Coca-Cola to a particular bar or restaurant. Still, as long as the consumer can choose to visit another establishment or order a different beverage, this definition of monopoly is particularly pointless. The same logic applies to the false notion of monopoly prices. In the free market, all exchanges are voluntary. A person can always abstain from purchasing a specific good or service. Monopoly prices is a popular term among mainstream economists who define it as when a seller can increase his profit by restricting the supply and raise the price above what it would have been if he had market competitors. But there are always competitors in a free market. If a town only has one egg provider, and that provider sets the price too high, people can choose to consume fewer eggs or even switch to having bacon instead of eggs for breakfast. All market producers compete to exchange their goods and services for one particular good, money. As a society's capital accumulation increases, the market supplies and the end consumer with an increasing number of options. Even if a giant corporation devours all of its competitors, it still can't set monopoly prices. People can start businesses for the sole purpose of being acquired by a larger corporation, and every time this is done, the corporation loses money. The only way for a company to drive out the competition would be to set their prices so low that newcomers couldn't compete with them. But this is precisely why competition is so good for the consumer. Amazon and Walmart may have driven out competitors by offering insanely low prices, but the game is on again as soon as they raise them. Ultimately, this benefits consumers. Even if the alleged monopoly drives a smaller company to bankruptcy, that company's stock of capital goods remains intact and up for grabs for a modest price. This stock of cheap production goods allows for more efficient competition as some new market actor will likely purchase and deploy them eventually. 
Monopoly prices is thus a term born out of financial illiteracy. All prices are competitive since they all compete with all other prices. The apparent absence of monopolies in the imaginary construct of the absolutely free market begs the question, do monopolies even exist? Unfortunately, yes. A business can find itself in a monopoly position whenever it's allowed to dominate an industry through coercive, violent means. Criminal enterprises can achieve monopolies and force their competitors out of business by threatening these competitors' families. But this unfair advantage is not limited to mobs, gangs, or mafias. Monopolies can and do form whenever there is market interventionism. An excise duty on a specific good will drive out competition, as well as government subsidy on another. Artificially low rates, resulting from an artificially increase in the country's money supply, disproportionately favor big companies and drive smaller ones out of business. Ever-changing regulations favor those that can afford to keep up with them and are rarely helpful to smaller companies. In short, any policy that interferes with the market process reduces all overall market competition, giving already established actors an unfair advantage, primarily since all market actors ultimately compete for the same good, money. Chapter 12. Purchasing Power Nothing is as crucial to the functionality of a free market as its money. Money constitutes half of all value expressed through exchanging goods and services in an economy. So what is the price of money? As explained earlier, the commodity with the highest saleability in the market quickly becomes the market's preferred medium of exchange, a fancy way of saying that it becomes money. Market prices denominated in this good allow for economic calculation which is necessary for society to advance. Whenever and wherever there is a discrepancy between prices, there is an opportunity for entrepreneurs to make profits. We've seen how supply and demand determine the price of goods, but determining the price of money is a bit trickier. Our predicament is that we have no unit of account to measure the price of money because we already express prices in, you guessed it, money. And because we cannot use monetary terms to explain it, we must find another way to express money's purchasing power. People sell and buy money for the value they believe that money can bring them in the form of goods and services at a later date. Acting individuals always make choices on the margin, hence the law of diminishing marginal utility. In other words, all actions are preceded by a value judgment in which actors choose between their most valued end and their next strongest desire. The utility of money is no different from any good or service in this regard. A person determines a sum of money's utility by the marginal utility of adding a unit of the particular good or service he believes this sum of money will buy him to his already existing stock. The same forces that determine the prices of every good on the market, supply and demand, also determine the purchasing power of money. The cost of money in an exchange is the highest utility a person could have derived from the amount of cash they gave up. If a person chooses to work for an hour to afford a ribeye steak, 
they must value the meal more than one hour of foregone leisure. Recall the law of diminishing marginal returns tells us that each successful unit of homogeneous good satisfies a less urgent desire a person has. Therefore, the value a person attaches to an additional unit diminishes for each unit added. However, what constitutes a homogeneous good is entirely up to the individual. To the individual, each extra coin is not homogeneous in terms of what serviceability it brings them. To a person who wishes to buy nothing but hot dogs with his money, a unit of money is the same as whatever the price the hot dog is. That person has not added a unit of homogeneous good money for hot dogs until he has acquired enough cash to buy one more hot dog. The money Robinson found on the derelict ship that once brought him to the island was useless to him because it couldn't buy him anything. Money is, first and foremost, a tool for communication, a language. Like all other language, money requires more than one human being for it to be useful. People choose to save, spend, or invest money based on their time preference and what they predict that money's purchasing power will be in the future. If they expect their money's purchasing power to go up, the incentives to save it for a later date become stronger. If, on the other hand, they expect its purchasing power to diminish, their motivation to spend it increases. Investing alters this analysis slightly. As a person's expectation of the money's future purchasing power also influences what type of investments that person chooses to make. Regardless of individual predictions of money's future value, money kept, whether saved or invested, provides the keeper with a specific service. It lowers uncertainty. By keeping money, one foregoes one's ability to satisfy other desires for the satisfaction of one's desire for safety. There is no way of distinguishing money hoarded from money intended to fulfill more immediate ends. For this reason, money is never in circulation, since it is always in the hands of a specific owner. Remember the praxeological definition of the present, the temporal period in which an actor evaluates, chooses, and acts. An exchange is an action. All actions happen at a particular moment. The money is thus always owned by someone and never circulates. Cash can never flow in the same sense that a river flows. It can only switch owners at exact points. Money is never idle, but is always of some service to its owner. The only way for a person to properly evaluate their money's future purchasing power is by studying historical prices. To do so, one must consider how much various goods and services cost today compared to what they cost in the past. Only then can a person get a clue as to whether prices are inflating or deflating. Governmental institutions often provide their subjects with the Consumer Price Index, which supposedly measures inflation. They base this number on a basket of goods composed of a fixed set of groceries and how they price these goods change over time. But measuring inflation this way is an attempt to hide the truth about inflation. The increase in prices is always proportional to the expansion of the money supply eventually. The creation of new money 
always leads to a decrease in the purchasing power of that money compared to what it could have been. As discussed before, if prices increase over time, people have a stronger incentive to spend than save money. Those who wish to retain their capital tend to buy assets they believe will maintain their value better than money. When measuring inflation, the money issuers purposefully exclude high-value assets from the CPI basket of goods. Otherwise, the prices of stocks, bonds, fine art, and real estate would reveal an inconvenient truth that inflation is always way higher than the general public is told or believes. Inflation impact on society is sinister and insidious. An increase in the money supply always favors those who hold assets and those closest to the monetary spigot. Even worse, price increases lag actual inflation and are felt by those they affect the most after the damage is already done. Monetary inflation effectively funnels wealth from the poor to the rich. However, even the super rich would have been better off if those in charge of the money printers could resist the urge to use them. The free market benefits all segments of society in the long run, and the freer it is, the better it functions. If, at each moment, the only way to predict money's future purchasing power is by studying historical prices, what was money's initial worth? By looking in the rearview mirror, we eventually arrive at a time when a common medium of exchange first emerged in a barter economy. What later evolved into today's money must have offered some additional value to people beyond its usefulness as money at some point. The purchasing power of that good evolved into money must have been determined solely by the consumer and commercial demand. At the exact moment someone used that specific good as money for the first time, the demand for it increased. It now served two distinct purposes for the owner, providing utility value on the one hand and functioning as a medium of exchange on the other. The need for the latter use case tends to overshadow the former over time. These co-demands set the purchasing power of all monetary goods. Gold, for instance, is used by jewelers and has some industrial use but most people value it because of its historical role as a store of value. At one point, even our bank accounts and the numbers representing the money on a screen were redeemable for gold. Fiat currencies came into existence when people started trading receipts for gold instead of carrying around heavy metal coins that were difficult to transport. The lightweight and compact Banknote proved the perfect solution to gold's transportability problem. Unfortunately, the issuers of these receipts quickly realized they could issue more gold tickets, banknotes, than they had backing for in their vaults. Indeed, overissuance is a problem that persists and has worsened over time. Today, banks that cannot repay their debts need not file for bankruptcy if they are politically connected enough to get bailed out. Money's temporal connection to historical prices is vital for the market process. Without it, personal economic calculations would be near impossible. The money regression theorem, described in the previous section, is a praxeological insight often overlooked in the discussions about money. 
It explains why money is not an imaginary construct by some bureaucratic wizardry, but has some real connection to a point when someone's desire to trade means for a specific end spawned it into existence in the free market. Money is a product of voluntary exchange, not a political invention or a social contract. A money printer, on the other hand, is. Only by understanding the origins of money can we comprehend the dangers of tampering with its supply. Any commodity with a limited enough supply could be used as money, presuming it ticked off all the other boxes necessary for a suitable medium of exchange. Anything durable, portable, divisible, uniform, and acceptable will do. Suppose the Mona Lisa had been infinitely divisible. In that case, its parts could have served as money, but only if there was an easy way to verify that they were actually from the Mona Lisa and not counterfeited. Speaking of the Mona Lisa, there's an anecdote about some of the most famous painters of the 20th century that perfectly illustrates how an increase in the supply of monetary goods affects its perceived value. These painters realized they could use their celebrity status to enrich themselves in a peculiar way. They figured out that their signatures were valuable and that they could pay their restaurant bills by simply signing them. Salvador Dali allegedly even signed the wreck of a car that he had crashed into and thus magically transformed it into a valuable piece of art. But after a while, these tactics stopped working. The more signed bills, posters, and car wrecks there were, the less valuable an additional signature had become, perfectly de demonstrating the law of diminishing returns. By adding quantity, they reduced the quality. We can observe the same phenomenon in all fiat currencies. When their supply is increased, their value decreases. True, the increase may temporarily enrich the issuer and the first receivers of the new supply. Still, the people on the bottom always pay for the people on top of the pyramid in the schemes like these. Fiat currency is the biggest pyramid scheme ever known to man. Inflation acts as a hidden tax that disproportionately punishes the poorest segments of society. The only way to stop it is to refuse the use of government-issued currencies. Chapter 13. Time Preference As we have learned, the praxeological notion of the present differs from other scientific disciplines' definitions. In praxeology, the present encompasses the entirety of the action, the time absorbed by the choice of the action, the act itself, and its completion. Completion can bring utility or disutility to the actor, but this is irrelevant to the praxeological definition of what the present means to the individual actor. In the empirical sciences, the present refers to a specific point in time. In physics, it can even represent a particular point in space-time. The price of action, praxeologically speaking, is always described in terms of opportunity costs. We cannot measure the cost of an action by measuring lost time alone. What options that are available to a person change from moment to moment, and thus, so do the opportunity costs for choosing to do one thing over another. 
This casual, temporal relationship is what separates praxeological time from measurable time. The extended presence of action consists of two substeps, working time and waiting time. Working time is when the acting individual uses physical labor to achieve his goal. Waiting time is the period between the point where the physical struggle stops and the moment the actor reaches his desired end. The total sum of the two steps is called the period of production. It is easy to see that the act of growing a crop consists of planting the seed, working time, and letting it grow and bear fruit, waiting time. But even a much more instant act, such as drinking a beverage, has working time and waiting time. The drinker lifts the glass, pours the drink into his mouth, and swallows it, working time. Only then does he evaluate whether the desired end, presumably thirst quenching, was reached. There is always a waiting time in the extended present of human action. The period of production must always be accounted for because action implies choosing one thing to do over another. Even if a person had enough money to buy all the theme parks in the world and enough leisure time to spend the rest of their lives at these places, they would still have to choose one action at a time. One cannot simultaneously visit Disneyland and Disney World. Acting individuals consider whatever means they have in the present and act accordingly to what they think these means will yield them in the future. Past means cannot be affected by present means. Their experiences can teach them how to make better choices, but they cannot change the past. All actions aim toward future goals. In acting, we sometimes only consider the impending moment and sometimes a more distant point in the future. The time horizon for which people think about the future implications of their decisions is called the period of provision. The duration of serviceability is the period in which the desired end will continue to satisfy the consumer. Together, these time factors play a role in the action evaluations and decisions. Let's assemble them for closer inspection. 1. The period of production, labor time and waiting time. 2. The period of provision, the time all immediate actions take. 3. The duration of serviceability, how long the final product is useful. To illustrate how an actor evaluates time factors, we will consider the case of a 46-year-old man who decides to write a book about praxeology. Before he starts writing, he will consider how long will it take him to write the book and weigh it against all other things he could have done instead. He will also factor in how long that book will be of service to him, including but not limited to, whatever yield it will bring him in terms of money. After all, writing a book can bring much more satisfaction than mere financial gains. Lastly, he will consider how writing this book will play into his entire array of decision-making. Will sacrificing the time he could have spent with his family free up more time for him to spend with them at a later date? Will the process of writing this book make writing books easier for him in the future? Will the readers enjoy the book and give it positive reviews, enabling him to sell more of his previous books? Well, will the recognition he gained from the book increase his options in the future? 
All of these are time factors that he has to take into more or less consideration before deciding to sit down and start writing. All actors aim for the satisfaction of a specific act to come sooner rather than later. To claim otherwise would be absurd. The act of saving is not postponing everything indefinitely. People do it because it reduces uncertainty in the present, not because they never wish to consume at all. However, a willing person is to delay the gratification gained from an action is called time preference. A person with a high time preference prioritizes short-term goals, whereas a person with low time preference is more patient. A person's time preference can never be zero, as that would imply a willingness to postpone everything forever. Everyone has a time preference greater than zero, and we call this the universal fact of time preference. People always prefer an additional unit of homogeneous goods sooner rather than later. But what counts as homogeneity is entirely up to the individual actor. An actor may decide to not buy a green apple immediately, but instead wait for the store to stock up on red apples. In this case, the actor does not consider apples per se homogeneous, but instead sees homogeneity only in red apples. Homogeneity in monetary goods is referred to as fungibility or uniformity, one of the six properties of money. Money must first be fungible so that a banknote is worth the same amount of coins as the figure printed on it claims. However, whether money is fungible or not is not binary. On November 8, 2016, the government of India announced the demonetization of all 500 rupee and 1000 rupee banknotes in use at the time. It also issued new banknotes that people could exchange for the demonetized ones. The government claimed its main objective was to curb the usage of black money, which included unreported and thus untaxed income. The people of India kept using the old banknotes, but their value dropped over time. An example of the opposite effect can be found in Monopoly Money, a 1935 trademark edition Monopoly board game box is worth somewhere between $400 to $1,000 today. The box contains around 20,000 units of toy money, making each Monopoly dollar worth between 2 and 5 cents. Considering that the game's original 1935 price was about $2, we can conclude that those Monopoly dollars have stored value orders of magnitude better than actual real dollars. Not to mention the New York Museum that once paid $146,500 for one of the original 5,000 copies of the original handmade version of the game. Alright, back to time preference. When people grow up and have kids, their perspective of time often changes. They'll realize that they'll need to get their lives together if they're going to be able to support their families. Children usually have a higher time preference than their parents. They are yet to develop the necessary skills to predict their actions and outcomes. In a sense, lowering one time's preference is what growing up is. It's about taking responsibility for your actions. People's time preference also often rises again towards the end of their lives 
as they realize how little time they have left, especially if they don't have any children. The point is that time preference is personal and dynamic, like everything else in human action. The yield one acquires by engaging in a production process differs from the process to process, but the more time one devotes to producing a good, the higher the potential returns. Before entering a long production period, one must accumulate enough capital to satisfy all intermediate, more urgent needs. Say that Robinson wishes to build a canoe to catch fish in the ocean and not only in the pond. To free up the time needed to create a canoe, he must first stockpile food to eat during the construction process. To save enough fish, he first needs to make the net, which, as explained earlier, he can only do by first catching enough fish with his hands to commence that production process. Shorter production processes precede lengthier ones in this way. Because of this, people must lower their time preferences to start a more prolonged process. In other words, they have to delay their consumption of present goods. By reducing your time preference, you speed up your process of capital accumulation. Increase capital accumulation and lengthier, higher yielding production processes raise the marginal utility of labor. Put another way, the more sophisticated the production process is, the more efficient the man hour becomes. Higher wages and more employment soon follow. The productivity of land, labor, and capital increase as society lowers its time preference. The more capital people have, the closer in time they are to achieving their goals. In this case, capital is time stored up. The more capital you have, the less consumption you'll have to give up to reach your goals. Another thing to consider when analyzing time preference and capital accumulation is the convertibility of capital goods. If a producer realizes that his productive efforts will not bear the fruit he predicted, he might choose to repurpose the capital goods to produce something else. The more primitive the capital good is, the easier this is to do. The more specific purpose the capital good has, the more expensive it becomes to convert it into something that can be useful in another production process. Robertson can easily repurpose the rope intended for the fishing net. It is harder for him to find a substitute use case for the canoe. Similarly, a purpose-built circuit for a specific industrial robot may be entirely non-convertible. Capital goods are innately conservative in this way. They best fit the purpose for which someone initially built them. Despite this potential drawback, lengthier production processes are still more productive. The more advanced the machinery used, the higher the output of consumer goods. The convertibility of a capital good determines when producers will replace it without regard for the availability of new fancy technologies. People will only replace something old with something new after accumulating enough capital to try out the latest technology. Capital accumulation is paramount for producers and consumers to advance. People don't automatically replace their old car just because a more advanced one is available and car manufacturers don't automatically erect robotic gigafactories. Setting capital convertibility aside, let us focus on the outside forces 
might affect a person's time preference instead. A person with no belongings must adopt a high time preference in order to survive. A person with all his belongings stolen finds himself in the situation. When you have nothing, you must prioritize your most basic needs. Finding food and shelter will overrule any other desires on your value scale. In contrast, when you have a lot of capital, you can afford to adopt a low time preference and focus on long-term goals. But even if you merely a tiny part of your belongings taken away, theft always affects your time preference. There's a clear connection between what you have and how ambitious your dreams can be. Who the robber is doesn't matter. When someone deprives you of your belongings, you must regress into a comparatively more primitive mode of living. If someone regularly forces you to give up parts of what you own, like when you pay taxes, you might never advance because you constantly must forego your long-term plans. The damage this does to society is immeasurable, even in countries with modest taxes. Plus, we never get to see what could have been. An apple farmer who owns a one single apple tree might profit so much from selling apples that he can afford an additional tree the next year. Now, he can satisfy the desires of twice as many consumers. If the process is allowed to continue, the apple farmer can double the size of his business every year, engage in catalactic competition, increase productivity, reduce prices, and make life better for everyone at an exponential pace. But if he has to give up half of his profit in taxes, he will never even get to the second tree. And no one will ever know what could have been. The alternative timeline never reveals itself. There is no empirical evidence to support praxeological theories. Only through understanding human action from a, a priori axioms can we comprehend time preference and how detrimental to society scheduled theft can be. Chapter 14. Loans and Interest As we've learned, acting individuals always prefer satisfying the same end sooner rather than later, and we call this the universal law of time preference. One can only create or save capital by lowering one time preference and rising above one's instinctional urges. Under this scenario, the market functions correctly and society advances. Capital goods are necessary for the production of consumer goods. The more productive the capital good, the closer in time the end product. Because capital goods result from man mixing his labor with the natural resources around him to create tools, we can view them as stored up time. Every device or technology made by human being was made for one specific purpose, to save time. In praxeology, time and capital are interchangeable terms. Time is money, literally. More capital enables an entrepreneur to be closer in time to his desired ends. For an entrepreneurial venture to be profitable, the cost of production cannot exceed the product's final price. Further, the capital goods involved in the production process must be sufficiently productive for this to be the case. In a mature market economy, almost all production requires indirect exchange. 
making money itself a capital good. Moreover, money is the most convertible capital good since you can exchange it for every other good on the market. In this sense, money is time stored. Workers typically earn salaries that are disproportionate to the earnings of their employer. Workers accept a lower fixed salary contract in exchange for the certainty of steady employment brings. In this instance, the entrepreneur takes on more risk than the worker and can sometimes reap higher rewards. Entrepreneurs must also be capitalists since they must generate savings to facilitate production. In response to profitability threats from the market dynamism and catalytic competition, they must also continually analyze market data and adapt their processes accordingly. Nimble adjustments are necessary as the dynamic market produces a degree of unpredictability. At the same time, catalytic competition causes market prices to trend toward an equilibrium, which constitutes the hypothetical end price for a specific good or service. No risk, no reward. In the imaginary scenario of a world in which an entrepreneurial venture could bring no more profits or losses, in other words, a world without risk, the business owner would no longer have to be an entrepreneur, but he would still be a capitalist. All production processes require capital goods, also called factors of production. Even in a world without uncertainty, saving capital is the only way to provide time, labor, and land to produce a consumer good. The capitalist is the worker's time supplier. An investment is effectively a trade in which the capitalist sells a present good, a sum of money, for an anticipated future good that he believes he can sell for more money later. By this point, it should be clear that all goods have a current price lower than the future price of that same good. Obviously, the same logic applies to money too, which is why the concept of interest exists. A time trade tells us a couple things about the two interconnecting parties. If a capitalist loans 100 units of money to be paid back within a year, plus an extra 5 units of that money, we will call the additional 5% the annual interest rate. The loan giver is expressing that he is willing to trade away the certainty of having access to those 100 units of money during the term of the loan for the profit of 5 units of money. He expects the loan taker to give him that in the future. He also expresses that his time preference is lower than that of the loan taker, who, through his action, tells us that he values money in the present more than money in the future. Without time preference trades like this one, all workers employed by a producer would have to wait until the product was finished and sold on the market before they could get their wages. We can define a wage as discounted good in the form of money that employees accept as a substitute. For whatever yield their labor could have brought them in the future, the capitalist's primary function is to supply time. Their capital stock is like a sorcerer's mana pool in a computer game, a source of magic they can use to buff their fellow gamers' stats to make progress in the game. 
Trying to eliminate the time element from economic theory is a fool's errand. Production fails without capital goods, and capital goods represent time economically. Any economic theory that tries to remove capitalism from the market process misses the point about capital. When money functions correctly, time truly is money. There is no way around this. The premium of the return of a capital good is the value of time determined by the price spread through each production process. We call this the rate of interest. The time market consists of more than the market for money loans. It necessarily includes all capital goods since all capital goods are time investments. If we imagine a world without risk, we can isolate the capitalist's exact role in the production structure. A world without risk would be a world without money, though, in reality, all capitalists producing any good or service are simultaneously entrepreneurs since all production and profit-seeking require risk-taking. Entrepreneurs must both consider time and interest rates. Interest rates are affected by opportunity costs, risks, and the uncertainty of the entrepreneurs who want to take on the risk by lending money. Just as prices tend toward equilibrium, the market typically converges on a specific interest rate. If one's bank interest rate is much lower than another's, a clever entrepreneur will borrow from the former bank and lend to the latter. Supply and demand underpin interest rates too, and arbitrage opportunities disappear over time because people compete to exploit them. There is no such thing as negative time preference. People always prefer stuff sooner rather than later. The market interest rate results from competing time preferences of people buying and selling time on the market and can never be negative. It is the ratio between the average market desirability of goods in the present and goods in the future. Therefore, the market's pure interest rate is more than just the price of borrowing money. It derives from the genuine scarcity of actual goods, not just the amount of money available on the market. Because praxeology includes time as a factor of production, it exposes why inflating the money supply cannot bring down actual interest rates without requiring other people to pay for cheap loans through rising consumer prices of goods and services. Artificially lowered interest rates do not, and cannot, add anything to the overall economy. All they can do is funnel resources from the have-nots to the haves and reduce the market's process functionality. The illusion of progress is not progress. Chapter 15 Capital Theory Interest is a phenomenon that arises from the fact that humans act and therefore prefer the same satisfaction sooner rather than later. It is not merely the price of a loan, but an expression of an undeniable truth about human existence, that we all have a time preference. We've also learned that a person's time preference cannot be zero, as that would imply complete inaction and death. Man must act, period. From those undeniable starting points, we've reasoned ourselves to further insights and concluded that capital accumulation is necessary precursor to economic growth. Using these insights, 
we can now form a coherent theory about how the mechanics of the free market led to prosperity. Through deductive reasoning and the praxeological way of thinking, we can fully explore the importance of time preference and its connection to civilizational advancement. Let's break down, step by step, what happens to a society when people voluntarily lower their time preference. To do that, we'll use an imaginary construct once again. This time, let's imagine an economy without gains or losses. What will happen to that economy when people start saving voluntarily? The answer is threefold. 1. The lowering of time preference. 2. A de decrease in interest rates. 3. A change in the relationship between capital and labor. First, let's lay out what a general lowering of time preference means. Another way of putting it is the general increase in savings and investment and a reduction of immediate consumption. In our imaginary construct of profit and loss-free economy, a general lowering of people's time preference begins when that society's net savings surpass its net consumption. The first effect we observe after people start saving is a general lowering of consumer prices. Remember, praxeology is an a priori science. We do not need to observe anything to draw conclusions, but for now, let us use the term observation anyway. When individuals reduce their present consumption, sellers of consumer goods must lower their prices and reduce their profit margin to avoid going out of business. The closer producers are to the final consumer product, the greater impact this effect will have on them. Interestingly, producers of capital goods and factors of production will not be immediately affected by the drop in consumer prices. They will absorb this impact later as the effects cascade throughout the market. By reducing consumption, buyers signal to the market that they prefer quality over quantity. At the same time, decreasing profits incentivize entrepreneurial investment in more profitable stages of production, those found further away from the final product. This relocation of capital adds steps to production and spawns advances in later stages, resulting in better consumer products. Predictably, additional voluntary savings will end up in stages further away from consumption, resulting in lengthier structures of production, which leads to more and better goods on the market. This capital relocation process will continue until the new rate of general time preference in society has spread uniformly across all production sectors. In other words, if all Robertsons of the world save enough money to buy fishing nets, the market will provide them with these nets. And if all Robertsons increase their savings, the market would ultimately respond by offering them an improvement to their nets, possibly even robotic trawlers. Decreasing interest rates is the second effect of a general decline in time preference. As we have learned, interest rates are simply the ratio between the prices of present goods against future goods. It should come as no surprise that in a world where people value delayed gratification, 
market competition for loans increases and interest rates drop. An entrepreneur evaluates a capital good based on the marginal productivity of that good for producing consumer goods. In other words, the price of a capital good trends towards the present value of its expected future productivity. Analyzing these phenomena together, we can see that lower interest rates lead to an increase in the general productivity of capital goods. When a society increases its savings, the production process lengthens and the number of stages in the production processes grow. Such changes increase the average duration of serviceability for capital goods. Again, quality over quantity. The lower interest rates increase the prices of capital goods as their marginal productivity increases. Thus, lower interest rates allow previously unprofitable ventures to become profitable, incentivizing entrepreneurs to start producing more advanced goods. Let's illustrate this by imagining Robinson again. This time, Robinson is no longer marooned loner, but a struggling fisherman in a productive economy. If that economy has a low savings rate, interest rates are kept high, and Robertson must be unable to afford a loan for a bigger boat. In this case, the yearly returns of a larger fishing boat are lower than the cost of borrowing money on the market. If there's a high general rate of savings on the other hand, interest rates are low and the loans become cheap to repay. In this scenario, Robertson can expand his business by buying a bigger boat. A bigger boat is an example of a new, more advanced, thus lengthier production process. The acquisition of the bigger boat is called vertical deepening of the production structure. If Robertson had instead used the opportunity of the lower interest rates to expand his fleet with additional smaller boats, he would have horizontally widened his production structure. To sum up, a general increase in savings leads to more competition in the loan market, lowering the going rate of interest. Lower interest rates mean lower prices for consumer goods and increased prices for capital goods in proportion to their distance from consumption. The increased value of the capital goods, in turn, leads to an expansion of the general production structure, either vertically or horizontally. New, lengthier processes become profitable, and existing ones can expand and increase production. What is the net outcome of lowered time preferences? Cheaper, more advanced consumer goods and services. A general lowering of time preference also affects the stock market. When society increases its savings, companies that handle production stages far from consumption go up in value, while companies in the consumer goods sector experience a temporarily relative decline. The third effect of a general drop in time preference concerns the relationship between capital and labor. As consumer prices decrease, every worker's wage now buys them more goods than before. In other words, their real wage increases. Real wages depend on money's purchasing power, which goes up when society advances. That is, as long as the counterfeits of the central banks 
can resist the urge to let the printers run amok. Sadly enough, they almost never can. The flip side of an increase in real wages for workers is the loss of profit for entrepreneurs who produce consumer goods. For them, labor has become relatively more expensive, and to adjust, they often replace workers with machines and automation. If capital becomes cheaper than labor, entrepreneurs tend to invest in more capital-intensive, and therefore, more advanced production stages. Low-time-preference societies thus become more advanced than high-time-preference ones. To illustrate, long winters force people to think more long-term, which alludes to why countries without them, from a historical perspective, have not processed technology as fast as their colder counterparts. Labor and capital goods always compete with one another. Capital goods replace labor when the latter becomes comparatively more expensive. Robertson's trawler competes with his catching fish by hand work in the lake, just as email competes with a postman. As savings rise and society advances, the demand for higher skilled labor arises and the demand for unskilled labor shrinks. All of this is not to be confused with artificial market interventionism, which can sometimes superficially produce the same efforts. The touchscreen in your local McDonald's that have replaced the waiters are mostly there because of counterproductive minimum wage laws, not because of actual technological progresses. Negative interest rates don't really exist, but are paid for by excessive money printing and future generations will have to foot the bill at some point. Electric car companies are highly valued because they're subsidized and can easily get their hands on those cheap artificial loans, not because they're the technology of the future. Praxeological capital theory shows us the logical steps that follow when people generally lower their time preference and start thinking more long-term. The inevitable outcome of the phenomenon explained in this chapter is an increase in consumer goods supplied through lengthier production structures. Things will become cheaper, more advanced, and more abundant, benefiting everyone, especially those with the lowest incomes. Today, a $1 a day worker in a developing country can access a broader array of better tools than any millionaire did a hundred years ago. Most of these tools are on his smartphone. A modern smartphone typically provides the owner a telephone, a GPS, a flashlight, but also access to the entire internet and everything on it. Books, movies, newspapers, music albums, and TV shows are all trending towards zero in terms of cost to the consumer. The only price you pay for listening to a song or a book today is the time you must allocate to listening to except for a small streaming service fee and whatever you pay for your internet service provider. The smartphone is a truly remarkable example of what a global free market can spawn. Even in the pseudo-free market of the 21st century, technological deflation has made many products accessible to almost every single person on the planet. The notion that a market functions best when inflationary currencies encourage people to spend more is false and dangerous. The smartphone emerged from the market despite people using inflationary currencies. 
not because of them. Economic progress in a free market leads to a drop in money prices as production and transport costs decrease over time. As we've learned and can observe in our lives, economic progress happens exponentially. Because of this, prices ought to drop exponentially as well. Some prices have, like the cost of data storage per megabyte, for instance. Few people realize this, though that is not the only realm of computing that has grown exponentially, more cost-efficient. Every industry on Earth has. The cost of shipping an avocado to another country is orders of magnitude lower than a decade ago. More progress has happened in the economy during the last 10 years than in the previous 50. The only reason prices remain somewhat stable rather than decrease is the dilution of the global money supply. The monetary dilution must accelerate because of the exponential nature of economic progress. All money printing leads to is a constant funneling of wealth from the already empty pockets of the masses into the already abysmally deep pockets of those closest to the currency spigots. Chapter 16 Counterfeiting Now that we've studied how a saleable good becomes money on the free market and how low time preference thinking advances society and makes everything cheaper for everyone, we can examine how money works today. You may have noticed that some countries experience negative interest rates and perhaps wondered how to square negative interest rates with the fact that there's no such thing as negative time preference. You may also have noticed the accelerating inflation rate and mainstream media outlets, blaming this phenomenon on everything but money printing. The truth about modern money is hard pill to swallow, because once you understand the magnitude of the problem, things may start to look pretty bleak. Yet the truth about money printing is simple. Human beings cannot resist the urge to enrich themselves by exploiting others through money printing. The United Kingdom was the first country to loosen the connection between gold and its national currency. Before the First World War, almost all currencies were redeemable for their worth in gold, which emerged as the most saleable good on the market over 5,000 years ago. By 1971, gold convertibility was scrapped entirely when President Nixon decided that prolonging the Vietnam War to win another election was so important that the United States should finance it with counterfeit money. Many books describe the dysfunctionality of the fiat monetary peridigram, and we will not dive deep into the matter here. What we need to know are the basics. State-issued currency is not money. It is debt. Every new dollar, euro, yuan magically comes into being when a bank grants an investor a loan, and the investor eventually has to pay the money back with interest. Thus, there is never enough money available on the market. On top of this, national central banks further manipulate the money supply through bailouts, which prevents certain other banks from going out of business when they should, as well as sometimes conjuring up even more currency through a method called quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is when the state 
gives the central bank a government bond and gets freshly printed green backs in return. A government bond is a promise from the government to repay with interest the money they just summoned from nowhere. Embedded in the bond is the government's commitment to keep taking your stuff through taxes and steal even more in the future while you and your heirs are forced to cope with the consequences of rising prices. Money per printing perpetuates the delusional philosophy of Keynesianism, the economic theory on which modern governments base their policies. According to Keynesians, the best way to solve a societal problem is to pretend it doesn't exist and print more money to keep government employees working. They claim that whenever a dollar bill changes hands, a dollar's worth of value gets added to the overall economy. They fail to realize that you cannot add value to society by diluting the value of money. If we add a zero to every dollar in existence, the value of a dollar would be worth a tenth of whatever it was the day before. As we have learned, economies grow because people trade with others and their future selves. They accumulate capital and plan for the future, producing more and cheaper products for everyone. You cannot fake this process by printing more money. What happens instead is the opposite. An ever-changing purchasing power of money makes economic calculations harder and slows down progress. All government-issued fiat currencies eventually die. They die either through hyperinflation or because the government decides to replace the national one with a more international one, like euros or dollars. During its lifespan, a fiat currency funnels wealth very efficiently from the hands of productive people into the hands of politically well-connected people. The further from the newly minted cash you are, the more you pay for the whole ordeal. The original or initial recipients of the new money enjoy higher living standards at the expense of later recipients. The concept of relative inflation or a disproportionate price rise among different economic goods is known as the Cantillionaire effect. First described by Irish economist Richard Cantillion about 300 years ago, it's not exactly breaking news that being poor in a fiat economy is expensive. Politicians, central bankers, government-funded, university-educated economists continue to proclaim that a certain inflation rate is necessary for the economy to function. Still, those who have studied praxeology know this is a lie. We see through the lies and conclude that anyone who asserts that monetary inflation is good for the economy is either misinformed, confused, or outright mischievous. Sometimes all three. We deductively reasoned ourselves to the conclusion that counterfeiting does not lead to prosperity. We know that all the abundant cheap stuff in the world came into being despite government intervention, taxes, inflation, and borders, not because of them. We know how robust the free market process is and how much better it makes all of our lives, despite all attempts to meddle with and control it. Praxeology is a remedy for cynics because it can make you appreciate your fellow human beings and their efforts more. Many people find the state of the world depressing because they've figured out that governments are generally bad 
and maybe even that there's something wrong with the money they use. Still, few grasp the same understanding of how human societies function can make you appreciate productive people more. When you see the whole picture, you begin to appreciate every supermarket cashier, every cleaning lady, and every employee at the car wash more because you understand how they all contribute to the betterment of mankind. The market produces goods, so ongoing competition, establishing who provides the best goods at the lowest prices, is potent motor for progress. The free market and catalactic competition is civilization. Everything governments have, they've stolen from productive people. Government produces bads instead of goods. So competition for political power has the opposite effect of catalactic competition. In this type of competition, the most unscrupulous win, not those who best adapt to the wants and wishes of their peers. The study of praxeology offers you an insight into human incentives and how they influence what people do. It gives you the tools to understand why listening to what people say is less important than observing what they do. If you want a clearer view of human society and why it is the way it is, you cannot simply look at the evidence. You must understand the ever-changing nature of human wants and wishes and that the only thing we can observe is what actually happened, not what could have been if things were different. The world could have been in a much worse state than it is, but it could have also been in a much better one without government interference making things worse. Understanding human action combined with the basic knowledge of psychology can help you understand the motives of fearmongers and why they're often successful in promoting their narratives. Evolutionary, the human brain developed to pay more attention to news of threats than good news. Taking action when someone yells tiger benefits your longevity more than when someone yells, hey, look at that pretty flower over there. The proposed solution to all the threats the alarmists warn us about is always the same. More taxes and more political control. It doesn't matter whether the perceived threat is terrorists, drugs, weather phenomenon, or viruses. For some odd reason, more politics and taxes are always the answer. If you've studied human action, you know why. It's all about the means and ends. Remember, for the individual actor... The ends always justify the means. When you see the world more clearly, it becomes easier to separate signals from noise. You can turn off your TV and start contemplating how to acquire more control of your time. You can understand why this is not an egotistical thing to do, but rather the best way to improve your situation as well as that of everyone else around you. You know that freeing up time and accumulating capital are two sides of the same coin. You understand that the division of labor benefits everyone and that focusing on what you can do to improve your life and the lives of those close to you is the best way to help the entire planet. Chapter 17. Argumentation. Can science ever derive an ought from an is? It's an age-old question that philosophers have been asking themselves for centuries. The general consensus is no, it can't, but we can get pretty close using praxeology. Can the proposition, we humans ought not to aggress against one another, hold true scientifically? To answer this question, we must first examine 
the only nonviolent means to arrive at consensual view of the world, namely, argumentation. A conflict arises whenever two people have opposing opinions of who owns what, and the only way to resolve a dispute peacefully is through argumentation. Argumentation is a human action. We can both analyze it deducively and deductively. All other human actions similarly. What distinguishes argumentation from other acts is that it is the only nonviolent act that can resolve conflicts. Argumentation holds several a priori truths. All truth claims are justified and decided upon with argumentation. One cannot dispute this claim since expressing an opposing view would be an attempt to justify one's claim via argumentation. Arguing is purposeful behavior, hence a human action. In arguing, people use physical means, notably their bodies, to achieve a specific end, an agreement on the truth value of a particular proposition. Whether this proposition is objectively true or not is of no matter to the truthfulness of these a priori statements about argumentation. Even though disagreement drives argumentation, the ultimate goal of the arguing parties is always the same, agreement. Therefore, argumentation is in itself a mutually agreed upon, nonviolent interaction between people aimed at resolving the conflict. The validity of the norms of action that make argumentation between two opposing parties possible, in other words, the praxeological presuppositions of argumentation described here, cannot be disputed through argumentation. There are two such presuppositions. In arguing against them, one again would fall into the trap of self-contradiction. The first praxeological supposition requires that we accept that every one of us owns our bodies, as described earlier. Arguing against this is self-contradictory since doing so proves that one is in control of one's body. Some say we have no free will, but this is also a dead end, as it would render every deliberate activity useless, including argumentation for or against free will. The second praxeological presupposition of argumentation extends the first, that one owns whatever property one has acquired through acceptable means before the argument begins. As we've learned, a specific relationship between a person and a nature-given object constitutes that person's property. We consider a person the rightful owner of an object when he has interacted with nature to make it or acquired it from someone else through the most common way to acquire property, trade. Arguing against these presuppositions is as futile as arguing against any other praxeological axiom. In doing so, one demonstrates that one seeks to resolve the issue by arguing in favor of one's position. But suppose one's position suggests that an opponent of the argument is less entitled to the means he is using to argue. In that case, one demonstrating that one does not wish to resolve the conflict by argumentation alone, but through some degree of violent means. Not admitting that by arguing, one is verbally battling out the conflict on a leveled playing field would be contrary to the very purpose of argumentation. 
to resolve the issue peacefully. Now, can these irrefutable axioms derive an ought from an is, or at least an ought not? In trying to answer this, we have to argue. As shown, one cannot argue against argumentation. Consequently, one cannot dispute another person's right to disagree. By arguing, we demonstrate that we believe intellectual argumentation is an appropriate means of resolving conflict. Therefore, we simultaneously display our belief in bodily autonomy and property rights. Holding any other position would be inconsistent and self-contradictory. The praxeological conclusions about argumentation do not prove that one can derive an ought from and is through scientific means. What they do prove is that all arguments against self-ownership and absolute property rights are logically inconsistent by definition. Thus, one must subscribe to the idea of property rights to engage in a debate about them. Because the irrefutable axioms of action and argumentation can be proven true a priori, all political views that reject absolute individual property rights must be deemed fundamentally false or at least logically inconsistent. Therefore, there is only one true logically consistent human right, the right to be left alone. Sadly, we live in a world where these fundamental flaws and inconsistencies prevail. There is no libertarian nation. Moreover, a libertarian nation would be a logical paradox since these principles apply to all human beings, not only those living in a specific geographical area. The ethics of argumentation, however, apply beyond morally consistent libertarian utopias. They are universally applicable to any jurisdiction at any time. One cannot argue against that position that, that human rights must be universally applicable without contradicting oneself either. Neither can one deny the validity of an argumentation as the only ethical means of arriving this conclusion without running into the same contradiction. Hans Hermann Hoppe first explained these ethics of argumentation in the 1980s. They constitute one of the most profound yet overlooked scientific and philosophical insights of the last century, that one cannot argue against absolute property rights with intellectual consistency. Let's illustrate this insight by examining our old friend Robertson. Robertson is in possession of his body. It is impossible to disprove this without contradicting oneself, as one has to argue against any given position to prove it is untrue. In this case, one would have to, by one's own action, show that one was in possession of one's own body to do so, rendering the very act of arguing against the proposition self-contradictory. In short, one has to acknowledge that Robertson has a body to show that he is in possession of it. Further, it is impossible to say that Robertson is not the rightful owner of his body, since doing so would require an equally self-contradictory action. The arguer would thus deny ownership of their own body, rendering the argument invalid for another reason, that the opinion expressed did not belong to the person uttering it. With bodily possession and ownership resolved, 
it now follows that Robertson is the rightful owner of whatever objects he chooses to appropriate on the island. Simply because no one else is present to claim otherwise, a dispute over ownership can only arise when two or more people are present. Enter Friday. As Friday arrives on the island, he can now claim that an object that Robertson possesses rightfully belongs to him instead. The only peaceful means Friday has to get Robertson to give him said object is to argue that it belongs to him. To deny this would once again be an act of self-contradiction. Therefore, original appropriation as the correct means of figuring out ownership rights is irrefutable. Similarly, it is equally indisputable that Friday would be the object's rightful owner had he voluntarily exchanged with Robertson for some other good or favor. To elaborate further, imagine that Friday one day forcibly enslaves Robertson. Even in this situation, argumentation is perfectly possible. An argument about something arbitrary, like the amount of fish remaining in the pond on a particular day, could be carried out, leading to an agreement between Friday and Robertson. But any argument about the morality of one person treating the other as his property would inevitably lead to contradiction unless it leads to the immediate emancipation of the enslaved individual. Today we can trace almost all property ownership back to voluntarily as well as involuntary exchanges throughout human history. It is virtually impossible to say that any particular object rightfully belongs to a specific per person because to do that, one would have to investigate the actual ownership of all factors of production that played a role in its creation since the beginning of civilization. Because this is practically impossible, we focus on future conduct and who owns what in the present. The only way to peacefully establish who is the legitimate owner of a particular object in the present is to argue about it. In light of this fact, we can conclude that a politician can debate the validity of a tax, but as long as the tax live under threats of punishment if they refuse to pay their taxes, all pro-taxation arguments are invalid. Probably so, if the taxman and his victim cannot resolve their dispute by agreeing with one another, they are no longer equals but in a master-slave relationship. And if the relationship devolves into slave and master, any arguments between them is not an argument, but a mockery on behalf of the enslaver. Your government is mocking you whenever they say it has given you a right to do something. The only thing it can give you is temporary permission to do something. All a government can do is take things from you. As long as some entity governs you without your consent, you are essentially a slave. You're only free to do one thing, obey. Anyone claiming anything else is misguided, confused, brainwashed, or outright evil and mocking you. All arguments against these irrefutable truths are self-contradictory and ultimately invalid. Chapter 18. Conclusion Human action is a purposeful behavior, and praxeology is the study of human action. It can give you insights into how practically everything in human society works 
and point out the limits of what we can and cannot know about ourselves and our interactions. The conclusions drawn from praxeology may paint a bleak picture of the present state of human affairs, but accepting reality is always a necessary precursor to knowledge. Moreover, while praxeology can expose the true nature of governments, it also explains how much of a force for good the free market process truly is. Praxeology illuminates how humans cooperating voluntarily for selfish reasons ultimately brings prosperity and abundance to everyone. It can kindle hope in the hearts of cynics, revitalizing their appreciation for other people. Every supermarket clerk, car mechanic, cleaning lady, and even YouTuber plays a part in the market process. Even public sector employees play a role in the market. We all act as producers, consumers, capitalists, and entrepreneurs at different stages of our lives, regardless of whether money is involved or not. We all act with intent. We all speculate because the future is uncertain. We have no choice but to try to improve our lives out of our own free will. Acting on purpose is what being human is. So mind your business, don't steal, and start doing something. And we'll all be better off if you do. This is the way. And that concludes Knut von Holmes' Praxeology. The Invisible Hand That Feeds You. And I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I think he may went a little bit overboard with throwing in some of the nuggets of information about, you know, weather phenomenon, climate hysteria, government shenanigans here and there. But I also feel like this could be a really good precursor book for people to really understand the scam that is government, the utter shit show that is currency that we're all forced in. Like, understanding these fundamental pillars that we have in society today is, like, one of the best things you can do for yourself. Because once you understand how the world works, like, I mean, imagine how many people you know in your current life today that have zero idea about what is even government like nobody even questions it because it's been around our entire lives since birth that nobody actually stops to think like why does government exist again you know like most people think that and in the same second they think oh well they're there to stop the bad people from doing bad things but like we can look back through history and see that the government has been the bad people doing bad things around the world, but they try to disguise their acts of what they do as good and moral and righteous for the sake of spreading democracy or defeating terrorism or stopping drugs from being on the streets. or Like, the list goes on, the amount of things that they say to justify the reasonings for the things that they do. Take police officers, for example. Like, most people assume police officers are there to stop theft and murder. But police officers are probably the most single 
individuals who perpetuate theft and murder in the name of the state in order to uphold the laws. Like, if you ever get pulled over in a car on the street, just try driving away. What do you think is going to happen to you? That cop is going to chase you down and shoot you and probably kill you. Because why are you running away? What do you have to hide? You shouldn't have to, you know, like the, the, the amount of absurdity and the ideal that this person actually believes that they have the authority to tell you a human being that is exactly what they are. They are just a human being dressed in a costume with a gun to tell you what to do because some mythical entity named government appointed me to rule you? Like, the sooner that we understand that the police force in our neighborhoods is not there for our protection, but there for the extortion of more taxes and to keep everyone in line to do as what government decrees, the better we will become as a society. This is why I've been going through the myth of national defense in all the prior articles that we've been reading. Because most people believe that if we did not have the protection agency, oh, sorry, excuse me, the protection racket that is police or armies, that everybody would just kill each other ad infinitum and we wouldn't be living here today. Like, I, I just thoroughly, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that humans would just kill each other all the time for no fucking reason. Like, we go out into public every single day with the assumption that the people that we run into are not going to kill us. If we truly believed that the people that we run into every day were going to murder us, we would never leave our actual homes. Like, this is what praxeology is about. Don't look at people and what they say. Look at what they do, because when you act with intent and you act with purpose, you are showing what you really think about the world, what you really think about your future, what you really think about what you can achieve in this world. And I think that praxeology is a very crucial pillar for understanding everything about how the world operates. And I really hope that the rest of you guys thoroughly enjoyed this and the next big book to read actually is human action by ludwig von mises and it's a really long book and i have it i've owned it for about a couple months now i just haven't got around to reading it i finished when money dies and then i got this one in the mail and when i got this one in the mail i was like oh i i, I just have to read this one now i can't wait to read this one so that's why i knocked it out and i'm glad i knocked it out with you guys and I hope you guys enjoyed it and you guys thoroughly uh, enjoyed listening to the read. So, I mean, now you guys don't actually have to buy the book. But I would suggest just going and donating some money to Kanut because he is a writer. He is trying to provide value like, you, like he showed us in there. Like YouTube people are out there providing value for us to entertain ourselves with. And I don't think that that should be anything short of what he is. We need to show that he has value, that he produces value for us. So we should show some appreciation with some monetary um, donations of any sort. If it's 5,000 sats, 10,000 sats, like whatever you can afford, just find his page, donate him some sats, you know, do, do whatever you can. You'd be surprised 
how much just a measly donation of 10,000 sats can actually make a difference for a person. Uh, speaking of, I haven't even gone on um, the donation page of Fountain in a while. So let's do that right this second, and let's see what's going on over here. If anybody's left any messages on Fountain Boosts. Fountain Boost. Oh, look, number one, Joelle. Thank you, Joelle, again for the boost. Appreciate the boost. 316 sats. Oh, another one from Bevo, 475 sats. Thanks for doing these podcasts. It's greatly appreciated. Well, uh, it's greatly appreciated that you actually find value in it and you actually listen to it because, you know, I wouldn't be doing it. Actually, that's a lie. I, I would probably still be doing it even if I didn't get any sats whatsoever because, you know, I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this to deepen my knowledge, and I'm hoping that by forcing myself to record these episodes and put them out there for everyone else to listen to, that I can help other individuals who are just as equally interested in this material as I am. You know, we can go through this journey together. That's what we're all here for, right? We're all here to just learn more, to question the status quo, to try to find what the fuck does freedom mean? And I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all in that category. I think freedom is something that every individual has for themselves. Like, every person has facets of what freedom can mean for them. And every individual should have the freedom to choose what those mean to them and how they imply them in their life to reach that level of whatever freedom means to them. And I think we can do that together as a society if we can continue to teach ourselves, to learn ourselves, to remain humble, that we really don't know shit. <laughs> um, this journey over the last two years has been pretty liberating because, like you said, like I said, I there was a lot of these things that I never even questioned myself, but I always knew something was up, something was wrong, something lurking under the surface that contributed to the nefarious activities that most individuals partake in. But um, anyway, it's been a long, long day. So I appreciate you guys. Share the episodes, please, so we can get more people listening. We can get some more recommendations on different articles that maybe, you know, I'm overlooking or I'm not seeing. You know, whatever you guys have recommendations, please, you can join me on Telegram. I have a Telegram chat open for these types of debates, for discussions. There's not going to be censorship in these types of groups. Like, I want to facilitate greater conversations about these things so that maybe we can, you know, come up with different ideas. Like, the, how do we know what freedom is if we don't debate about these things? We, we have to have some debate. We have to have some room. So join me on Telegram, t.me, Axioms of Liberty chat. Uh, connect with me on Twitter, uh, Axioms of Liberty, and I need to get my Nostra set up for Axioms. I haven't set one up. I should probably do that today. I think I'll do that after I wake up from my nap, though, because your boy is tired. I worked all fucking night. It was a long night. But I hope y'all are good. Enjoy. Until next time.